This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Well, first of all, can you hear me okay? Clears a bell. Excellent. I got a, a fa- my friend here. I met at my friend's house. He's got a fancy mic here. Um, you could defend yourself with that thing, like a ten, <laughs> it's, it's, like, like it's like a ten-pound microphone. Oh, isn't that like an area mic? It's called a a Yeti Bluetooth. Yeah, so that I just bought one of those, uh, which is quite a coincidence because there's a lot of microphones on the market. But I believe that that is intended for if you had a group of people. Mm-hmm. And you were trying to record in person, and you were trying to record all of them. They call that an area mic. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah, you, so you, if you had a lot of background noise, that would not be the mic you'd want to use. Gotcha. Um, there probably will be a little background noise. Let me no, get some light here. This um, is like a real homeboy podcast. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, the, the, the poor audio is like, supposed to make it more like quaint and kitschy you know yeah it's a a little bit less polished more more authentic i just listened to um i forget the name of the guy but he was all up on kind of alaska state hunting regulations and and politics and he'd done a lot of work up in the, the brooks range i forget the name of that gentleman that you interviewed but um yeah Oh, was it the guy from the Nature Conservancy? No, no, he was a hunting guide up there. Oh, oh, that wasn't me. That was my podcast co-host. Oh, was it? Jim Durkin. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I didn't do a a good job prepping then. It was a good podcast. Oh, that's fine. This is going to go so, because this is going to be just, this conversation is going to be totally the sort of things that you talk about a lot. So I don't think you need to worry about that. Did did you know what the podcast is largely? Um, roughly, but feel free to give me the, the well. Okay, one sentence so summary. It's 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 a it's an indictment of hunting entertainment and the hunting industry. That's what it centers on. And although I'm trying to broaden uh, the focus a little bit as time goes on to keep it from getting repetitive, because we've done like seventy some episodes now. Uh, where we've tried to establish our set of ideas, you know. So we, we access is a uh, one of our major concerns. Hunting access, I bet. And we, I bet. And we see, and we see, hunting media in the hunting industry is deleterious to access. So, and we don't need to get into all that. But that's like something. That's a, a main thing that we focus on. We also believe that. Uh, the commercialization of hunting has eroded the integrity of the pastime. Uh, so that's something that we harp on a lot. But those aren't going to be things that we talk about today. I want to talk about you and what and what you do and, and some of the things you think about. I want to start out, I just got done looking at some of your movie reviews. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, like, for 2023, you watched you weren't just reviewing 2020 movie three movies that were released in 2023. You were reviewing movies that you watched in 2023. That's right. And you did, you got, you gave your worst review to, to Barbie. 
I was not happy with Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> so tell, tell me about that. Well, first of all, it, it, it just wasn't that funny. Like I've enjoyed some Will Ferrell movies, but he was like, Oh, for 14 in that movie. Not one got a, a chuckle out of me. Uh, and you know, it was like a nice kind of candy colored, um, you know, entertainment fest for, for two hours. But I thought the themes were awfully muddled. I didn't think the filmmakers kind of settled on what they wanted to say. Like um, the character Ken is just like, which, which is my name, but Ken, um, he's, I don't know if the journey he's on is supposed to kind of emulate the, the journey of a woman going through a patriarchal society or, or what, but by the time the, Ken's kind of landed and went on an amphibious assault in Barbie land against the other Ken's. I was like, what does this symbolically mean? Because I'm completely lost. So I kind of didn't know what it was saying. Yeah. I felt I felt the same. I thought there was a few of the jokes that I thought were kind of funny, but uh it was it struck me as one of those films that like kind of cops out where they seem to be striving to make some grander point, but they can't figure that it out. So they kind of do a bunch of stuff to make it so that you, you as the viewer are inclined to assign some kind of theme. It's kind of spitballing. It's, I'm going to just spitball a whole bunch of stuff and maybe one of them will stick to the wall. Yeah. You know, maybe something's going to work. Maybe we're just going to accidentally hit a jackpot there to mix yeah. a few metaphors. And I'm afraid it, it didn't work. But I don't want to come across as one of those men who's kind of butthurt because men were kind of the butt of the joke. You know, oh, I, I no, I don't care all. about that. Like, not I'm, a, yeah, you I'm went and saw this. it, as did I. It's like <laughs> I'm <laughs> judging it on the merit of the, the movie, um, regardless of my sex. So, yeah, agreed. It was one of those <laughs> movies that tried to be deep just to be deep. Like, you ever see that movie, John Malkovich being John Malkovich? Of course, yeah. By the time I got done watching that movie, and like, I have both movie narcolepsy and movie amnesia okay like i fall asleep in movies i'm, I'm the opposite i never fall asleep in oh movies. i love watching movies but it's on the like you didn't like being john malkovich no by that time i mean i'm like okay so i have the movie narcolepsy but also the amnesia i can be watching a movie and realize halfway through it that i've already seen it yeah so I'm I'm the, I'm, te I'm I'm terrible, and I always have to have when I'm watching movies that are kind of complicated. We gotta stop and have my wife or who I'm watching with kind of explain where we're at because I'm I lose the thread unless it's really linear. But man, there's no way in hell you could convince me that that movie knew what it was doing. It was just like <laughs> putting out a bunch of like deep looking stuff. And you're supposed to figure it out, but I don't think they knew what they were doing. Kind of like I, the same thing I, with I this Barbie movie. Really like that movie, but I'm sure we don't want to spend our time talking being John Malkovich. No, but I'm I, amused it, you're it, reading my cranky movie reviews, yeah. which are just my way of of venting my uh, irritations out to yeah. the world. Maybe some other time. Wait, maybe after we're done recording, I can take 15 minutes and explain and get and convince you that John being John Malkovich. You can is go bullshit. on as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but then that Barbie movie, the other thing with it is, man, like, 
I was kind of entertained the first half of it, partially because we went to this posh movie theater where you get dinner and a drink and you're in a, in a recliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that in itself, you know, was like, I could have been watching like something from uh, the genre I dislike most, like romantic comedy. Yeah. But it, it wasn't enough to overcome the shortcomings of the movie. Well, and then two things happened. I got done with my dinner and my beer. And then the last third or so got so goddamn theatrical. <laughs> That's when I had to abandon any notion that they were driving at some grand point. It's just Spit, got spitballing. They just yeah. nothing stuck. They tried a whole bunch of stuff. Nothing stuck. So you're the author of several books and I read, I've only read one of them. I read your most recent book, right? Uh, mm-hmm. This land is our land. You also wrote another uh, book with a tantalizing title, uh, tra- trespassing across America. And I, yeah, I want to talk to you about those books a little bit, but the, just because I'm curious, after having read your most recent book, which was published in 2018, what have you been up to the last five years? What do you got to What do you got to say for yourself? <laughs> Don't, oh, that, you're putting salt in the wound now because this is something <laughs> I think about all the time. I had a nice seven year streak where I published three books. In yeah, seven years. I was very proud of myself, and then all of a sudden, uh, a little baby popped out of my wife, and um, I was the primary caretaker for the first couple of years. So that's my main excuse, uh, in addition to kind of procrastination and general laziness and, and all that. And just kind of looking up in the sky, kind of wondering where my next idea is going to come from. And it just kind of didn't come. Um, but I've been working on a piece, um, on, a, on a memoir I'm calling Out of the Wild, kind of in reference to Into the Wild. Like I think our um, our culture kind of glorifies those stories of, of going into the wild and braving the elements and yeah, coming just back. In case, I mean, there's going to be people that aren't aware of that. It's Jack, uh, Crack, John Krakauer. Yeah, John Krakauer, Into the Wild. I'm sure a lot of your listeners. I'm sure, but some of them not. So it, it, and I'm not giving anything away because it's in the first page of the book, but it's about this, a real story about this young man, 1992, Chris McCandless. He's just kind of, bored with his suburban life and he he seeks a life of adventure and meaning so he goes up to alaska with the idea of living off the land and he gets kind of outside of fairbanks and hikes this trail called the stampede trail and he he crosses the teklanika river and he finds this abandoned bus out there now known as the magic bus and he lives in it for about a hundred days and um he essentially starves um there's there's some dispute over the exact cause of his death but he, he starved to the point of weakness um and it's a it's a, a beautiful story about you know he could, the river came up and he couldn't get back across it is that right that's right or is that the speculation at least that that river is driven by glacial melt so by the end of the summer all that glacial melt it turned what was a somewhat placid river into just um, raging whitewater. And I, I actually went out to that bus when it was there. It's gone now. Um, but I went out there in 2012 and I crossed the Teklanika in May 
And I've done a lot of river crossings. I was a backcountry ranger at Gates of the Arctic National Park. So I would cross rivers multiple times a day. Um, and uh, that, that one almost, it almost took me. And this was, at, this was when it was at its most placid. Um, but it was like waist high and very scary to cross. And uh, so when Chris tried to recross it, I don't blame him for being like, oh man, I just got to go back to the bus. Because when he tried to cross it, it was just boiling white water. So anyways, um, I, I love that book. And I'm calling my book Out of the Wild because it's not about going into the wild. It's about leaving the wild. I was a park ranger one summer in Lake Clark National Park, which I'm sure some of your listeners um, know where that is. That's in southern Alaska, 4 million acres, volcanoes, glaciers, and grizzly bears. I was surrounded by grizzly bears. I was living within one of the densest concentrations of bears in the world. So I'd see about 35 bears every single day. And I was, ter I was terrified <laughs> by my job. I never quite got used to it. And this is in Southeast Alaska? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of right next to Katmai National Park. Okay. Where, the, um, uh, Timothy Treadwell. Timothy Treadwell and the Werner Herzog movie, um, Grizzly Man. That, my that favorite place. documentary of all time. I love that documentarian. Yeah. You won't see any negative. Well, I, I, it's a documentary, but yes. yeah, it may be also my, my favorite documentarian. That dude is just, yeah. Well, even his, even his, not, even his dramas are fantastic. Ag Weird Wrath of God, that's known as a classic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's a point when I was 34 and I decided I kind of want to reinstitutionalize my life with family with with better work with community with neighborhood because i've just been living out of tubs and kind of living a somewhat dirtbag life as a ranger author so yeah it's it, the book i'm working on is a story about i you could call it a love life memoir something that guys never write about but i, I wish i had some of those books to read to, to figure out how to navigate these difficult circumstances uh can you be one notch more specific or are you being intentionally vague I'm, I'm 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 just trying to succinctly summarize i'm happy to go more into detail yeah give me, give, me a, give me a little bit more like the premise is i used to be like a hard-hitting wilderness guy and now i'm a family man yeah well i mean i think i'm i'm always going to be a bit of both there's part of me that really misses alaska i live in scotland right now i know we're bouncing around oh, everywhere really? but yeah Okay. Uh, I'm actually, I'm talking to you from North Carolina just to confuse things even more, but you're home for, you're home for Thanksgiving. You could say that. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, like in, in matters of the heart, I think most people feel completely blind. And as you said, romantic, romantic comedies don't help us with, with anything. So like, I didn't have any sort of guidance or wisdom. We're just all kind of on our own trying to figure out who we want to be with. Okay. Okay. I'm okay. And, um, what's a good relationship to hold on to? Who should you decide to do the work with and stuff like that? So these are all issues I had to, to navigate through my, my late twenties, early thirties. And I thought it would be a lot of fun to, write a book about that. that all, it all sounds kind of dry, but really it's just me 
um, making fun of myself, or as in Britain, we'd say taking the piss out of herself um, for, for 300 pages. So I'm just hoping it's an entertaining and funny romp as I make a whole bunch of mistakes. Wow, this is a very different book. Yes, yes. Um, and I think uh, as an author, as a creative person, I don't want to kind of be tethered to one genre. You don't all. want to be a one-trick pony. No, I, I started off as a travel memoirist. And the trap they get into is I live my first journey authentically, and then I write about it. And then it's just like, oh, I got it. I, I made it. Now I got to go on a bunch of other journeys and write about them. So it's just kind of they're approaching their their journeys in a less authentic way. And I never wanted to be that sort of writer who just you just cranks out 10 kind of travel books. I wanted to kind of live my life authentically and then and then maybe hopefully extract something artistic out of it. Um, I think this is a great idea for a book. I've I would love to <laughs> Thank read this you. book. I got to tell that to my my agents and would be publishers. I think most oh, people. Oh, you are, still haven't are, found a home for it. No, no, but I will. I, I've learned the publishing game. I published three books. This one's going to become a book. So yeah, yeah. I didn't get married till I was forty three. Ah, okay, I'm fifty two. My wife lives on the other side of the state, uh, but she's here this week, which has got me in a very good mood. I. Uh, I, uh, I guess, you know, the absence makes the heart grow, uh, fonder, especially for her. I could live with her, but <laughs> no problem, but she could not live with me. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I'm just delighted to, I'm just delighted to have her here. She is, I don't know, just some, just, just a pleasure for me to be around. So we're, we're, we're watching, um, we watched most of it last night before my movie narcolepsy kicked in. We're gonna finish it. Yeah, this is how bad it is. It was we were watching uh The Godfather and I started falling asleep. Okay. Well that's better than Barbie for sure. <laughs> oh man, I think it's a tremendous film. Tremendous film on so many levels. It's one of the best. Just that opening wedding scene is just kind of so long and bizarre, but yeah, yet you learn so that's... much about all all the characters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's certain movies. This that's one of them. The the I think the one that has this the most is the Timothy Treadwell documentary where there's an emotional buzz under the surface. And there's just like so much tension in The Godfather and but even more in that Tim I think it's with the Timothy Treadwell documentary. It's because you know what's going to happen and it just it brought my heartbeat up very early in the film, maybe five beats a minute, and mm. it stayed there the entire time. Even as I'm watching the most beautiful wildlife videography I've ever seen, like brown bears swimming 10 feet under the surface in these crystal clear pools, picking off salmon like seals, you know? But just all the while, you just know it's going to get dark. <laughs> and one of the underlying questions you have throughout the movie is, is this guy crazy, you know, or, or what is wrong with this guy? And they go into, you know, how he was kind of damaged and had his, his mental difficulties. But when I speak to some of the subsistence livers up in Alaska, when I lived up there, 
they would they would um they were quite impressed with his knowledge of bears i mean oh. he got eaten by one but he really knew how to to read bears how to react when they when they bluff charged him like he he could teach a class on that um so and his videography was great so yeah there's a lot of good things about him you know what ted nugent said hmm. when that story broke he said i always knew I like bear. I didn't know. I just didn't know that bear liked hippie. This <laughs> is like a terrible thing to say right after a tragedy, but I don't know. I guess it's long enough now that you can kind of chuckle a little bit without being a total a-hole. But, <laughs> uh, um, Oh God, now I lost my train of thought. I had somewhere I wanted to go with that, but we'll just get back into the, like the reason I asked you to come on. <laughs> um, Oh, I remember what I was going to tell you. Remember the part, and then we will get to your books. You remember the part where he and his girlfriend are inside the tent and they got these red foxes kind of playing around outside and kind of jumping on the tent and stuff like that? Vaguely, yeah. Man, I think it was the first fall after I watched that movie that I was hunting and um, I get back to camp in the dark and I hunt with pack llamas. and. Pack llamas are like, they, they are a foolproof alarm system. Nothing gets near your camp mm. without them knowing about it. There's, I had this llama, Haggy. She was the first, one of the first ones I had. And she, one time, I, she starts alarm calling. It's kind of like a horse whinny, mm-hmm. but it's different. It's, but it's real high-pitched, very loud. like that and in the middle of the day she starts doing it and she's looking off into the woods and i go into the woods go around a big rock pile that's filled with uh raspberry bushes down through a little dip around three or four trees and there is a conifer with a porcupine on the back side of it oh okay like, I don't know how in the hell she knew that thing was there. But, but anyway, did it make, this, did it make you feel safer? Cause, cause she, oh, it totally a, makes me feel safer. Yeah. So this, this night, I, I get back, this night I'm telling you about, uh, get back to camp and I'm making some sandwiches and I look up with my headlight on and right there, about six feet from me is a red fox, which startled me all the more because my alarm system had failed. And because they were, the llamas were scattered out around there, you know, and I would have thought, you know, you ever see that, did you see that show Grizzly Adams? No, that might be. So that was like a old, it was like a, it's a, it was an old TV show, maybe in the eighties probably in the, sometime in the early eighties where it was about this mountain man that had a way with the animals and he had a pet grizzly bear and he's always helping animals that are in trouble. And I felt like I was like, I felt like I was uh grizzly Adams when this thing came in. Like, Holy shit. Perfectly wild Fox. He wants to chill out with me in camp. The only thing that didn't, that detracted from that feeling was just having watched grizzly man. Because in that movie, 
I learned that foxes will sometimes do that. Yeah. Will, like just shed their fear of people or some individuals don't have a fear of people, but he was hanging out with me. I know you're not supposed to do this, but I was feeding him little bits of meat and cheese, you know? They can be very personable. I remember my first day in Lake Clark National Park, I was just all alone living outside of this cabin and walking along the beach and looking at bears. And this grizzly was walking towards me and it had a little, one of those tiny miniature red foxes just daintily trotting like right next to it. And I was like, (laughs) is this a scene from one of those pleasant little British children's books or like or a disney this, movie oh no or is this like a, a german kind of hard lessons learn kids book like what's about to happen oh, to me? oh, oh yeah gotcha. um yeah. so i I, t- I have this theory that there's actually no good bear stories because i have so many bear stories but they're all bad because they all end anticlimactically for a good bear story someone needs to get bitten or you need to have to like shoot the bear because every single one ends and then the bear went away. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or if the bear did something like extraordinarily altruistic, that'd be good too. Yeah, that would work too. Like if he saved you from drowning at the end of the story. I did not see much altruism that summer. <laughs> I actually thought like I, I I do not want to be a bear. Like Living out and getting rained on all the time and being chased by the big boars and being eaten as a cub and the sex is definitely non-consensual. It doesn't seem that pleasant to be a bear. Yeah. Yeah. Bears are all in it for themselves. Apart from a mom with cubs. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Apart from that, there's there's not a very good bear society. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I did not read. Oh wait, okay. Let's let's go into your let's go into your work this way. I saw where you've been uh, doing some speaking at universities. Is that is that fairly recent? That's been kind of a side hustle for about five years. Yeah. Okay, and in those speaking engagements, are you talking about your work uh, uh, having to do with? property rights and right to roam and is that's that roughly part of half your... of them yeah okay like, like an environmental studies um department will come and invite me to talk about something like that or a law department um and the other half is kind of a more of an entertaining story about my trespassing across america hike which we can get into later if you want what's your assessment of the contemporary academy um I, th- I think the kids are all right. I think, oh, well, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch to criticize about it. Like, it's it's too expensive to start with. I mean, I graduated with a bunch of debt, and it, it's a terrible way to start your adult life. And it forces you to study stuff in school that, um, you know, it, it forces you to f- focus on a career when I just wish we could kind of use those four years to develop our minds and become good citizens and um, learn a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but yeah, like there's a whole bunch of stories out there about how kids need their safe spaces and trigger warnings and how speakers are kind of heckled at. And I get some irritating questions sometimes. Like I get, I get like a lot of blowback for being like a straight white male sometimes. Like, oh, sure. have you, have you reflected on your privilege as a straight man? Those are really oh irritating God. 
questions. Oh but and I think I think when people complain about those things, they should point out that that's actually a, just a couple of cases when the great majority of the kids are sensible and understanding and compassionate and there for all the good reasons. There seems to be a shift where where I thought what was one of the things that was virtuous about pursuing a degree when I was doing it was that you would engage in a course of study that was broad and learn about a, a lot of topics, you know, history, sociology, psychology, uh, the, the, uh, the STEM classes, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like that's, more disparaged now it's like parents and students alike kind of take this i'm never going to use that attitude about classes that are outside of their primary field of study um so yeah it's refreshing to hear you you know say that anew that that's one of the virtues of yeah, I, I'm a liberal arts guy. I mean, I was a, an English major and a history major in my undergrad. My graduate studies was uh, liberal studies, which is just a, a very broad uh, approach to philosophy, literature, um, anthropology, just kind of all the humanities. And in an ideal world, I think it would be great if uh, people who showed, um, people who were capable and had the desire should be able to afford a, a four-year education to really develop their minds and experiment and explore. But I, I think this disparaging of the humanities and the liberal arts, it comes from kind of an, an economic point of view. Like if you're going to be going $50,000 into debt, you might as well be studying something that's going to um, lead you to a, a um, lucrative paycheck at the end of it. So it 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 contributes to a kind of cynicism towards those things but yeah i really believe that to become a good citizen you have to have a very broad education and be reading a whole bunch of different stuff and it's a shame that um yeah higher education is not in the state it should be in i read this uh that there's a book about john adams that was written a handful of years ago it was a pretty popular book i can't remember the guy's name that wrote it but he enshrined, he was, uh, he helped write the, was it Massachusetts? Yeah, I think it was Massachusetts Constitution. I think, yeah, I think he was, um, I think he was a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. He may have even been on the committee to write the Declaration of Independence, if I remember right, with Jefferson and Franklin. But anybody listening, don't quote me on that. So, but yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, they... At his behest, they enshrined education in their constitution. And their motivation for doing that was that they thought, he and a lot of the other founding fathers that thought that an educated society was a precondition to having a democracy. Like you could not have a democratic society without it. I was telling this guy that is part of my little team of Hunt Quietly folks, that and this guy is a he's a study he's studying to um, for the bar right now he's a law student and I think he's studying for the bar maybe he's not but he's in he's in law school 
And, uh, but he got his undergraduate degree in philosophy. And he said, there's, there's, um, you could, that's something you can read in, 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 in Aristotle as well. I, I agree completely. Yeah. I think to be an informed citizen of this world and to pers- participate properly in our democracy and, and country. Um, yeah, we, we need these foundational educations and, you see <laughs> a lot of illiberal and anti-democratic forces happening in our country. And I'm guessing they didn't have a nice liberal arts education from, from their school. Yeah. Okay. Trespassing Across America. 2017? 15. Uh, 15. 16. 16. Yeah. So you trespassed across America and wrote a book about it. I was very pleased with that title, trespassing. Oh yeah, it's punchy. <laughs> what am I? Did you ever feel book? guilty when you were trespassing? Um, guilty isn't the right word. I felt cautious, um, and I certainly didn't want to frighten any landowners or put them off or anything like that. So I was a very conscientious <laughs> trespasser. Um, I should explain why I did that walk as as someone who is a conservationist and uh, loves this planet and is just concerned about the environment in general um, this pipeline came on my radar proposed route called the Keystone XL which I'm sure everybody has has at least heard of but that stretches 1700 miles from central Alberta, Canada to the Gulf Coast of Texas. So at this point, it was just a proposed route. And I thought as a a young man, as and someone who wanted to kind of start their career as a journalist, I thought, what better way to, to write a story than to do something this bold and crazy and, and interview landowners along the way. And research the history of pipelines and the Great Plains and climate change and, and and stuff like that. So, yeah, I researched how all the Appalachian Trail through hikers did their hike because there's no guidebook on how to hike a pipeline. No one has ever done that. I, to my knowledge, no one had hiked the Great Plains in recent memory in this north to south way. So um, I boxed up all my food. Um, my buddy, Josh, he was my base camp. So he'd mail my food to post office along the route. I had a backpack with about 45 pounds of gear and I'd spend every day trespassing. I, um, mostly cow pasture, hay fields, cornfields, um, stuff like that. And from like the first four provinces and states, Alberta down to South Dakota, it felt like I was walking across a national park, like an undesignated national park, because it was so empty, so wild. You know, there's barbed wire everywhere. So I was, it took me like Montana to learn the proper technique about how to get get by barbed wire, which is to kind of go in the midsection and then just kind of push down on the top wire and then throw your leg over before I was leaping over and rolling under. Um, But anyways, I'd have to do that about 30 times a day. I'd sleep under, I'd sleep in my tent, hide my tent every night, get up before dawn, cook all my meals, keep an eye out on cows. I was chased by a lot of animals on that hike, actually. I was chased by a moose up in Alberta. And the scariest thing was. I got chased being, by a moose once. It was horrifying. Yeah. It is horrifying, isn't it? 
it wasn't even a sprint. It was like this gangly kind of hormonal trot, which was mm. even scarier. Um, and I was in a stampede of cows, which I talk about in my book. I had I had 20 cows chasing after me at one point. And um, uh, some of your listeners are laughing at this point about my phobia of, of cattle. But in my later research, I, I read that 14 Americans die in cow related fatalities every single year. Oh, but how many of those are, how many of those are when they're working cattle and they get kicked or something? It's probably, it's probably the great majority of that. Now, like I know that back in the day when there was Texas longhorns, a lot of people would get killed by them. Like, yeah, but uh, I, okay. So I don't know who might say, but I, 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 I live in cattle country. I do wonder if you would have turned around and been like, Ah! <laughs> if they would have ran off. After this, I moved to Nebraska. I lived in Nebraska for about six months, and I lived on a cattle ranch. And I, I was, um, I'd help out, so I was sorting cattle, okay, um, separating calves from their moms and and stuff like that. So I got over my cow phobia, and I realized that I was probably not in that danger of a situation, but I was terrified when it was happening. T- yeah, I, thought, sure. I thought I was going to get run over. And just in Scotland, just a couple couple weeks ago, someone got killed um, walking across a, a cow pasture. Um, they got um, trampled to death. So it does happen, though, sometimes. Okay. Well, I'm glad you were, were not a victim of a cow-tastrophe. <laughs> uh, so it was a, a, a wonderful hike. I, I have nothing but fond memories of that hike. I was, How long were you out there? Uh, 146 days, which is four and a half months. So on average, you average it out. I think it's about 11 miles of hiking a day. But that 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 includes like days I took off and didn't hike. But when I really got going, I could easily do 20 to 25 miles. It took me about a month for my feet and legs and shins to kind of adapt to the rigors of the hike um but eventually i got there yeah and you use that journey as a through line to discuss the things you you mentioned uh the pipeline climate change mm, uh property rights no yeah i get into that a little bit I, I spend like five pages maybe in that whole book on kind of my thoughts on private property and no trespassing and stuff like that. And when I finished the book, I still had a whole bunch of thoughts and questions. I thought, oh, maybe I could turn that, those five pages, maybe I could turn that into a whole other book because nobody had had done it before in the US at least. Um, just kind of a history of private property in America. How long have we thought of private property in this very kind of um, exclusionary way? Um, how do other cultures, indigenous cultures, European countries, do they have a different idea of private property? Um, and just by asking a whole bunch of questions like that and researching it, I was able to make another book out of this out of the subject, which I called "This Land Is Our Land." Awesome. So the first book was, or not your first book, but the 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 trespassing book was a. It gave you the it, like the intellectual fodder curiosity to write this well it kind of what it did was it kind of shook me by the shoulders a little bit 
because it's like a, a, a fish's relationship with water. Water is the fish's universe. It doesn't think of the water. And I think kind of private, private property, that's our water. That's our universe. So we grew up seeing these no trespassing and private property signs. I don't know what it's like out West for you, but that was the case with, with me and my friends on the East Coast. And you just kind of, it's just, you don't question it really. That's just how things are always are. So when I began to be threatened out there, that people would say all the time, like, you're going to get shot for what you're doing. And um, one guy that I, I was actually, I woke up surrounded by a Montana Aussie, not too far from Baker, Montana. They <laughs> they surrounded my tent in this kind of triangular fashion. This is like armed. an ad hoc collection of like the landowner and his friends it uh it, it was his the landowner's neighbors uh, it was only three of them it wasn't a huge posse it was a sheriff he was kind of like a grandfatherly figure and then a young man who was 18 his hair was all messed up looks like they just got they just rolled him out of bed and said here's your gun and uh i actually saw him the day before because I, I knocked on his house to ask for water and i looked at him and i was i, I thought to myself like dude, I thought we were cool. <laughs> um, he had this pistol, which was just like like this long. Like it was like a compensatingly long pistol. And for then those, this like- For this those, gruff, of you, those of you listening, you could like think of like shoulder to shoulder on a large <laughs> man, maybe. That might be a little like hyperbole, but yeah. So, uh, and then um, this like gruff, no nonsense, 50 year old dad guy. And he was not- um, weakening to any of my my charms at all and he was the one who says who said i would have shot you he, my neighbor would have shot you if he'd seen you so stop doing this and i walked away from that really disturbed because we all hear stuff like this we all see the su- signs but on this hike wasn't there uh, recently like a really high profile case somewhere in the u.s where this dude shot a guy for turning into his driveway. There's little things like that that happen. In in one of the southern states, this Japanese foreign exchange student, he was dressed like John Travolta for Halloween. And he just went to the wrong house for the Halloween party. And just the guy just took a step out and shot him. There's There's stories like that. There's not so many of someone just kind of... Uh, um, ambling across a field and getting shot okay right there's, there's not right. so many of that but on this hike i was truly falling in love with my country with with america like the coyotes chattering outside of my tent every night i'd see these huge herds of deer prong i'd never seen a pronghorn before and when i'd see like six of them just flying across the grass like like comets leaping over these barbed wire fences or one time. Well, most just, people say they can't, most people think they can't jump a fence. Oh, they can. I believe me. I watched a lot. I've of seen them too. Now, no a lot problem. of times I see them get really befuddled by a fence and try to go under it and run into it. Fences aren't good on them. As a matter of fact, our game, like fishing game management agency here in Montana and some of the land management agencies like BLM, they, they try to, do fence modifications to help pronghorns that's deal terrific. with the fences yeah. better like they do I, I, they do know, terrible like yeah they will jump a fence once in a while so go ahead <laughs> but they, yeah uh, yeah so it's just like i was falling in love with 
the great plains and the beautiful clouds and and sky and 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 for people to constantly tell me they're going to shoot me or someone else is going to shoot me for placing my feet over blades of grass and taking pictures of sunsets and sleeping under the stars it felt like there was something profoundly wrong with how with how precious we are about guarding our our property i thought there was something incredibly uh, wrong and messed up and off and unneighborly about this approach to our property. And there's a couple legitimate reasons. There's, there's, there's certainly a couple for people, landowners to be wary. But by and large, I came to deeply question the water we're surrounded by. The water? As in like the fish's water, the universe. I see. Yeah. Um, I see. So it wasn't until I, I traveled through Scotland, um, where I live now, I've lived there for five years now. Where what I brought you to Scotland? I I met my wife there. I gave okay. a talk at a book festival, and I I saw this hot redhead there, and uh, um, she lived in Edinburgh, Scotland, and she had this huge ceilings and this big bay window looking out across this beautiful stone city, and I thought, oh, I could kind of insert my myself in this life here, and and we hit it off and had a kid a year later. So that's what brought me to to Scotland. And anyways, they have a law from 2003 called the Land Reform Scotland Act. And what that did was, among other things, create what is known as a right to roam. Um, more technically, it's known as the right of responsible access. So what that means is uh, as a British citizen or as a, a visitor, anybody listening can go and enjoy this right. Um, you're allowed to walk over private land for reasons of recreation, education, um, or just, you know, just getting around. So that means you can hike through someone's woods, you can camp on someone's hill, you can go horseback riding, mountain bike riding, take a canoe over someone's lock, walk down a stream. You can do all of that, whether it's public land, like national parks there, or private land. Um, and the, the key word is responsible. You can only do those things if you're doing so responsibly, or you're at risk of fines or, or punishments. That means no litter, no invasions of privacy, can't do this in someone's backyard, and you can't go swimming in someone's pool. Um, doesn't include motorized access. You can walk over farm fields, but you can't walk over vulnerable crops. And if you have, if you're going through cattle or sheep fields, you better have your dog on a, a leash. So just very kind of sensible rules and regulations that that govern this. And it's just such a much more inspiring um, way to share our land with others than the more American model. Like I, I do think it promotes kind of a, a neighborliness where you're seeing people more often, good good physical health, better mental health, a greater sense of equality. So even though someone might own 5,000 acres and have a big mansion on it, you kind of think to yourself, oh, that's his land, but it's also sort of my land. I at least have some some rights of access to it. And um, of course, I'm talking about private property. Like Private property exists in Scotland. You can still own your 5,000 acres you can have your economic activities on it. You can grow your crops on it. You can build whatever you want on it, so long as you're within zoning regulations. Um, but you also have to to share it with responsible 
recreationists. And not just Britain, right? It's not just Britain. No, it exists pretty much all across Northern Europe. The Scandinavian countries, which have all the nice things, um, Finland, Norway, Sweden. Sweden is called Allemansrotten, which means every every man's right or every person's right. And they, they put that in the Swedish constitution in 1994. Baltic countries, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Belarus, and to some extent, in, in kind of a partial right to roam, it exists in Poland and in Germany. The rights aren't as expansive. Same with England and Wales. Like England and Wales, they passed this law called the Countryside and Rights of Way Act in the year 2000 that opened up um, mountains, moors, heaths, and downs, which to our American ear would be unimproved grasslands. That's just 8% of, of England and Wales. Um, and that's just for daytime walking and picnicking. So it's not like the whole suite of of rights that you get in the Scottish system. And some of it, some of these countries, so there's a, I know there's this thing like in ancient Roman or Greek law where like there's this idea about laws that anything that wasn't deemed, that's not deemed illegal is de facto legal. Yes. Right? So aren't some of these countries that where you're allowed to trod on land you don't own just because there was never a law, it was never a bundle, it was never a stick in the bundle of property rights to begin with that you could just exclude people from walking around. England and Scotland is a good dichotomy because they're part of the same country the, the united kingdom we can think of them as like states england being a state and scotland being being a state but they before 1707 were very distinct countries and they had different foundations of law and it's exactly as how you've talked about it in scotland um and this this kind of feeds into the 2003 land reform act if as long as you're you're not doing anything wrong, it's not illegal. So it just has a more of a kind of respect um, to the the individual user than England, which kind of very if it's if it's not a right, then it can be declared illegal. I kind of bungled that a little bit, but I hope your your listeners get the gist of it. Yeah. There, when I moved to Montana, I moved to Montana in 1997, and then it's almost like we had a version of right to roam that was more permissive. Not only if if lands weren't posted, not only could you go on them, you could hunt on them. Wow! And I think I think North Dakota is still that way. Uh, There's 29 states um, where the, that that is the case for hiking. Where okay. if it's not posted, that's interesting. Are, I would never have guessed that. Yeah, and I don't know what twenty nine states those are, but you are allowed to be hiking if it's not posted. But the American landowner in all those states has amazing powers of exclusion. So the second they say, "Please get off my land" or put up their no trespassing sign, then it is illegal to be going on there. But as long as it's not posted, those twenty nine states you can do it. Yeah. When you were on your long journey across the plains, something started to take root in you about, like, like you said, you were falling in love with um, America. You were having these amazing experiences. 
that in some way, shape or form necessitated you going on land owned by other people. And I think I've always been kind of animated by that since I was a notion in some way, shape or form myself, since I was a little kid, I grew up around a lot of no trespassing signs in Michigan. And it just always kind of, it's just something wrong about being born onto this like speck in the cosmos. So like a, like a, almost like a, um, existentialist kind of Heidegger kind of way of looking at it like this thrownness. We are thrown into this world and we're thrown into this, onto this speck in the multiverse. And then not only that, but there's all these rules and regulate regulations restricting the parts of the speck that we get to experience. That just doesn't, it's just never felt right to me. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, like if, if you look at Karl Marx, he's calling for the abolition of Uh-oh. private property. Now people are going to be commenting, <laughs> calling us, <laughs> calling me a pinko, commie, leftist, Bolshevik, bullshoid, Marxist, I, well, but. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just joking. You go, I'm not go agreeing with, with Marx. Um, so he calls for the abolition of private property and kind of, it kind of being owned by the state and kind of in the public body. I'm I'm not arguing for that. Like I see the purpose and utility of of private property. Like I myself, I own a house and a tiny British garden and in, in, in front lawn and I'm I'm happy I can do things on there. I have a, I have seven acres and I have trespassing allowed signs on Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. I'm envious of your acreage, though the British lots are so are so tiny. Um, but what was I? I'm what sorry, was I, I, keep, I, was no. interrupt, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, train so, of so so. But but when you start talking about owning fifty thousand acres, which is some of the land I was walking over, some of these uh, farmers and ranchers they they would own fifty to sixty thousand acres in in Canada, um, and to to think that. You know, me as landowner, I could, I own every blade of grass. I own every speck of soil. I own the air above this land. That's such a a, a narcissistic and um, unneighborly and just ultimately, I think, nasty way of of looking at ourselves in relation to this to this earth it it, it 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 does not register with me at all, all as some uh universal truth so i I've, I've always been fundamentally opposed to that so a little bit of civil disobedience of of walking over that land um never struck me as a as a terrible thing to do you know about you know uh kohlberg's moral hierarchy uh, no, but please educate me. Oh, there's this guy. He was a philosopher. He tried to describe the stages somebody goes through in their ethical development. So, like, stage one morality is where you only do what's right because you're afraid of getting caught. That would be like the lowest form. And then the highest form 
is uh, where you're guided by like ethical principles that uh, are based in logic, kind of like Kant, you know, like Kant's idea of a categorical imperative, like where you to the point where you're under a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws, you know? So like you'll, you'll break the law to do the right thing. That would be the stage six, you know, there's six stages and then there's all these intermediate ones, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't trespass. I'm, I'm not trespassing for uh, stage one reasons. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm, I guess I point being, I, I, I agree with, I agree with you. Oh, and I'm sure you've thought about this. So not only are there 50,000 acre ranches, and I'm sure you know this, in Canada, but there are lots of 50,000 plus acres in the Western, U- acre ranches in the Western U.S. And, and there's a lot of public property embedded in those. Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I interviewed... Um, the Bureau of Land Management and okay. National Forest Service. And they gave me some interesting statistics. They said 9% of BLM land, which amounts to about 22 million acres, is inaccessible because it's landlocked behind private property. That's that's 22 million acres that, that you own, that I own, that everybody listening to this owns, but that we have no access to unless we have a, a parachute. You know, it's that's that's a crime to me. Um, and the land not to mention a lot of state land. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, and the Forest Service they were a little bit more tight-lipped about it. But I spoke with some people who talked off the off the record, and um, they're like, "Yeah, it's it's pretty bad with with forest land too. Sometimes it's really hard to." Oh, access I didn't know that. Yeah, and, I guess there's a national forest called Custer National Forest, south of where I live, and I think there might be a little bit of land locked in there. That's interesting. Yeah, and and you look at something like fish and wildlife land, and a great portion of that is closed off either due to uh, you know um, resource protection or staff shortages or stuff like that. So when you look at how much public land there is in the U.S., which when you add up state and federal land, it's about 35%. And you think, oh, that's actually pretty good. Over a third is is more or less accessible, except for the exclusions that I just, the uh, exceptions that I just mentioned. But then when you kind of look at where everybody is in America and where all of this public land is, it's just like, it's kind of irrelevant. To, There's a, <laughs> to, a major mismatch between when the, where the people are and the public land is. Precisely. So the the states with the most public land, and I might get this a little bit wrong, but it's Alaska, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, and and one other state. I don't know if it's Colorado, but um, one other state. And they have about 3% of the U.S. population, but uh, the majority of, of public land. So for someone like me, who's from, who grew up in Buffalo, New York, you know, there was there was not really any public land near me. There was a tiny little Niagara Falls State Park where nobody would ever go. Um, but yeah, so those other places basically didn't 
exists to me. And so much of it, 40% of public land is in Alaska, which is wonderful when you go to Alaska. But who goes to Alaska? You know, there's less than yeah. a million people over there. Yeah. So you, you write in the book a lot, and it was very interesting, how things went from very not restricted to very restricted through time in our country. Yes. Would you mind taking us through that a little bit? So um, I think, so basically what I'm calling for in this book is an American right to roam for kind of the Scottish right to roam to be imported into the States. But imported isn't even the right word. word. I'd rather kind of resurrect the right to roam from the dead because the right to roam existed in the U.S. Um, certainly not to everybody, um, certainly not to enslaved people, but to Euro Americans and to some extent Native American tribes who had their own version of the right to roam. So basically from before the dawn of our country up until about the Civil War, the right to roam, again for Euro Americans, was a very um, established and protected right. And it wasn't just by custom. This was something uh, upheld in state courts, state supreme courts. It was uh, enforced in law. To, to get around in early America, I mean, fishing and hunting was such a normal part of life. So come time for the, the Bill of Rights after the, the Constitution, you actually had the Pennsylvania delegation to the Constitutional Convention proposed a right to Rome amendment. <laughs> so if if they convinced the other states to, to pass it, the 11th um, Bill of Rights amendment could have been a right to Rome amendment. And that's because for, to this, for the people in the state of Pennsylvania, getting around um, for transportation, for hiking, for fishing was a critical part of of everyday life, and they wanted that to be enshrined in the in the Constitution. So, um, one of the things I did when I was researching was like, oh, I'm going to get all the biographies of all the founding fathers, make a big stack of each, and I'm going to go through their boyhoods. And guess what? Every single one of those founding fathers, from Washington to Adams to Jefferson, was romping around, trespassing across their local. Um, Communities. Benjamin Franklin probably held his famous kite experiment, trespassing on on private land. So is it trespass? Right- okay, yeah, that's you. You couldn't even call it trespassing, right? Because there was it was just yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the f- the first trespassing sign. Uh, it's it's almost impossible thing to figure out. But the first time it was used in a U.S. newspaper. Um, was pretty late. I think it was like 1890 or something like that. And when you read something like um, John Muir's uh, A Thousand Mile Hike um, to the to the Gulf, I think that's what it's called, where he goes from, what is it? Indiana or Kentucky, all the way to the Gulf Coast, A Thousand Miles. This is in 1867. He does not mention one private property sign one no trespassing sign. Virtually all of that was across people's land. So back then, it just was not a big deal at all. So this started to fall apart after the Civil War. Um, So it started in the South. Um, In the South, 
uh, a bunch of states. And Brian Saar is a, 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 a law professor. He, I got all this from him. States like Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, they passed uh, resolutions in 1865 acknowledging the end of the Civil War, acknowledging the end of slavery. And basically the next day they pass a no trespassing statute. So why would they do that all at once? If all of these newly freed people, what's the best way to starve them into submission and to throw them back onto the plantation? You create a no trespassing law so um, they can't hunt, they can't fish, they can't forage, and they can't um, support themselves as well as they could. So it kind of starts in the South that way. So prior to the Civil War, anybody in America was allowed to um, to move across land that was unenclosed, which means unfenced and unimproved. And about, oh man, about 90% of the American South at that point was unenclosed. So um, a huge portion of it was was open to roaming. This began to 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 end after the Civil War as well. You have the advent of of barbed wire in this area. So then you can suddenly partition up the grasslands um, where you know there's, there's very few trees out there. So how can you fence the grassland when you can mass produce barbed wire? I think that's in the 1870s, 1880s. You can um, parcel it up privatize it, and suddenly a land that was always roamable is now kind of um, partitioned off into individual private property pieces. So I heard, and then I heard recently just, that the uh, Native Americans called barbed wire devil's rope. That's a good way to put it. And I had to stitch up my, my trousers about 50 <laughs> yeah, times right, on my yeah. hike. <laughs> um, and then there was just kind of less nefarious stuff happening too like the american economy was really beginning to become more diverse and mixed and people were hunting and fishing less so anytime a law that chipped away at the roaming rights you just didn't have the same impassioned lobby fighting to retain those lights we needed needed a bunch of you back then Uh, if if only I could have enjoyed some of that roaming and never had to worry about some landowner coming out and and shooting at me. Though I'm sure that was a little bit there uh, too as well. And and I think we we also became a little bit more selfish as a as a country. Like I think you can look at a few per- periods in American history as when our 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 government and laws were, you know had their thorns and their flaws, but by and large, they were aimed at um, enhancing things for the common good. You, I think you see that um, kind of post, uh, de- kind of depression up until about 1979. Um, I think you see that after the revolution. So there's, there's a couple great periods where we were aligned with the common good. And I think we have been kind of stuck in more of an individual rights epoch, um, probably since 1980, where people feel that you know um, they don't have to work, they don't have to think about their community when they they close off their lands to access. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it seems like that mindset is on steroids in the last ten years to me. Yes, but there's other other 
traces of it. And this is the other point where all your listeners are going to abandon us. But um, and not to make it political, but, you know, the word socialism was a very dirty word up until when Bernie Sanders reclaimed it. And I think when you see a lot of young people in support of policies that to their eyes, uplift the whole American community, whether it's, you know, universal health care or universal education. That's a, a strand of American political life that is not on that kind of individual rights steroids. They're thinking about things in a different way. Yeah, which leads people that are inclined towards protecting individual rights into doubling down that's interesting. Air, There's air, a backlash. Air, yeah, air, air, yeah. Ergo, the division. It. I mean, the, that, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm 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 impassioned by this issue because it's kind of followed me around for my my whole life. You know, I'm 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 calling from nor rural North Carolina right now, just south of the Virginia border. I lived here off and on for seven years, and um, I live on a lived on a gravel road with about five houses. Um, this is in the rolling foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. It's all forested. There's black bears and turkeys and groundhogs and, and copperheads and all that here. It's a wonderful ecosystem. And I would go for walks in the woods and it was just kind of generally understood that neighbors could kind of go wherever they want. And one day we had new neighbors and they put up a bunch of purple rings around all their trees and put no trespassing. This was before they introduced themselves to anybody and all those walks that I went on, I suddenly felt like I, I couldn't go on them anymore. I remember once I went to this this gate over over a, a right away bridge, and they put a a cutout of a black assault rifle. I just no longer felt safe in my own neighboring woods anymore. And suddenly, I was one of those millions of Americans who has to get in my car and drive somewhere to go on a walk. You know, I got to drive 20 minutes or 30 minutes to get to a state park or or a trailhead. He actually turned out to be a decent <laughs> neighbor and gave me some permission. But for years, um, yeah, it changed my life. Yeah. One thing I hype, I harp on a lot is that, you know, uh, so much of the land that we can't go on that as hunters we want to go on is agricultural land. and you probably know that like a large part of farm and ranch income is on the taxpayer. It's uh, been ranging between 10 and 50% annually of their income is, is uh, from the taxpayer in recent years. And that strikes me as not right. No. And yeah, I did this research for the book. No, as not well. right. Like not, there should be some access stipulations associated with that is what I'm you're saying there should be when yeah the, when yeah well that's one of the reasons why the Scottish right to Rome works like you know how just to make another crazy fish metaphor like a catfish loves muddy water right um good laws good laws love crappy situations and the Scottish law came out of a few crappy situations and the one of them was that half of Scotland is owned by 432 people. Oh. 432 people own half of the land in Scotland. So it's just Do you like, have a similar stati statistic for the U.S.? 
It's gotta, I have some statistics. Gotta for be, the, it's got to be. The, no, no the, first of all, no. The, the last full-scale study on land ownership in America was by the United States Department of Agriculture in 1978. Oh. And that was, what they found was um, the wealthiest 1% owned um, 49% of the land. Oh, wow. Well, that's staggering, and it's only gone up since then, we both. The richest 5% owned 75% of the land. The Land Magazine, which I'm sure you've come across every year. No. Every year, the Land Magazine, I think it's just for rich landowners, because I don't know who else is going to be reading this. Every year they do. It, it's a it's a re, like a real estate magazine? Something like, yeah, kind of for rich people who own a bunch of land. Every year they do something called the Land Report. And um, when I was doing research for my book, they do it on the top 100 landowners. Um, and they rank them. So Ted Turner was... Number one with 2.2 million acres. There was another guy, Joe or John Malone. He had 2 million acres. So that's 4.2 million acres owned by two people yeah. right there. When you when you add up the top 100, that's 38 million acres or 17 Yellowstone National Parks. <laughs> 100, peop- 100 Americans, Matt, they own 38 million acres. That's That's 2% of all American land. Owned by 100 people, and maybe maybe some of them are generous. Maybe Ted Turner has has turned into a, a roaming paradise. Uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 uh, so, not not the case. So I don't want to throw them all into the uh, a basket full of, of bad apples. Um, but um, but that's that's messed up. That's messed up. So when when I talk about bringing the right to Rome to America. I'm not imagining opening up Aunt Susie's, um, you know, backyard. I'm thinking of these vast tracts of land, like the yeah. corporate timber industry. They own between fifteen and twenty percent of private land in America. That's that's like that's a no brainer. That should be that should be open for responsible roaming in periods of no no felling and stuff like that. So. So yeah, so there's a ton of land inequality there. And my point was bad situations create bad laws. And that was the case in Scotland. Because Wait, good people, laws? Didn't you say bad situations? Sorry, create- yes. Good laws come out of bad situations. And in Scotland, their farmland is so heavily subsidized by taxpayers that farmers, they have no way to say, you know, this is my land. Can't You can't get on here. And someone else could say, well, I'm kind of paying for a lot of it. And as you point out, billions of dollars get thrown to American farmers or think about um, how we how we taxpayers pay for firefighters to protect people's private property. So there's just a ton of taxpayer money that's going to land that we have absolutely no access to. And I tell you, when I'm walking across the Great Plains, you can stop, you can hear my zeal at this point. Yeah. And you see these undulating, beautiful mounds of grass, like waves in the ocean as far as you can see. And it's an amazing feeling to have this whole landscape to yourself because you're behind 20 layers of barbed wire. It's an amazing feeling. But sometimes I felt like this was a tragedy. I take a picture and I think to myself, no one is ever going to 
no one else is going to be able to take this picture. No one else is going to be able to see this this beauty. And it's just a travesty. Man. Man, yeah. I'll, I'll calm down now. <laughs> that's powerful, man. That's powerful. So, like, now you're mo- you're writing about, you're writing and, and doing a lot of thinking about a, to- a totally different topic. Do you... Do you see yourself as staying in, involved in this vein and, and, and forwarding this message in, in the years ahead in some way, shape, or form? I, I mean, there needs to be a right to roam society. I have, I have the, I have the Facebook group. I think I have like five followers at this point. So come, come join me. And but we got to figure something out on how to have an, an actual effect. I think. One thing to learn from is the English right to roam movement right now, because they're fighting for a Scottish-like right to roam, and they're doing it right. One, they're all over social media. Just go, just just go on Instagram and type in right to roam, and you'll find the English group. Um, and they're holding these mass trespasses. They've been doing this for over a hundred years because um, they've been excluded from from their common lands for over a hundred years and it's very effective uh, it gets a lot of press and they're able to to push um political parties namely the labor government the labor party to to fight for more rights so uh, we have that to learn from them so so yeah i would like to be more involved in this but i just don't know if there's enough of a market for it i don't know if there's enough people who are as angry and zealous uh, yeah. as, as as we are, so I yeah. kind of view my role right now as just as an educator and um, introducing these ideas and just hoping someone will will um, will take the lead on it. Well, uh, I think you know if you haven't realized this already, you have a you have allies in the hunting community. It is. Access is a huge problem, and it's only gotten worse and worse and worse as in, over my lifetime as a outdoorsman. It is and how much of that is reasonable on the on the um, from the point of view of the landowner, and how much of it is just pure selfishness. A lot of the constriction is places that used to be open to like you banging on the door are now those places are now leased out to an outfitter or places that used to be enrolled in a government program, like a state run program that's funded by sportsmen to allow access. They, they don't, those programs don't pay as much as an outfitter. So in as much as the landowner kicking out the common man and going with an outfitter and now you got a situation where you got a ranch or farm that 20 people used to hunt. And now it's two rich people, like four rich people a year, you know, people, the highest bidder. And as much as that is greed, then it's greed, I guess. I am sure that there's also landowners get fed up with bad, with poor hunter behavior. That's a component as well. But um, yeah, it's just that first for hunters, Hunting media has created an intense market market for the hardest thing to get if you want to be a successful hunter, which is access to land that holds game. Yeah. 
that's harder than not knowing what you're learning how to do it. It's harder than, uh, it, it, it's harder to achieve than physical fitness, marksmanship, you name it. Any, everything else, good boots, whatever, all that stuff pales in comparison and importance to having access to game in terms of your chances of being successful. And so what's going to be the thing that gets commodified most in the hunting sphere? It's going to be access. That makes complete sense to me. And I've always been a bit drawn to hunting, even though I've, I've, I've never um, killed an animal. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't grow up with a dad or a grandpa who had a hunting background. And kind of when I thought about like, how, how am I going to get started? Because I just have no idea where to go. I kind of need someone to kind of walk me walk me through that. So that's part of the issue. But the other part is, is there anywhere to go? Oh, um, yeah. And we're in, in New York, there's, I, I had a guy on the podcast that hunts, some public, hunts public land in New York. You're going to have to get creative because it'll be crowded. You know, you might want to consider bow hunting, which would be a little less crowded. I, yeah. You're not in New York anymore, so why? I'm, I'm in Scotland. We're only yeah. rich people, on, anyway. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not really an option. But yeah, I, I had think- a guy from I had a guy from from England on who hunts most of his meat, and he doesn't pay for it. Like he just forms relationships with landowners, and maybe they won't let him hunt uh, deer, but they'll they'll let him hunt bunnies. You know, so like he just kind of ekes out uh an existence as a sportsman in england so it, it, it's tough getting started over there but yeah I, I don't think we can expect something like a scottish kind of right to roam law for one thing the constitution leaves um property law to the states so i think the most you can kind of imagine is you know the state of new york or montana or vermont passing a law some of the property scholars I spoke to said, actually, you probably want to amend the constitution, the state constitution first, just to make it um, ironclad so the courts can't overturn it at all. So that's the way to do it. One of these Western states where you have a whole bunch of hikers and hunters and fishermen who are just fed up with the status quo they need to <laughs> they need to really lobby their their state government yeah and again you know it's like we're not talking about collectivizing land here we're talking no. about we're talking, we're talking about, about maintaining about, private property you can still do your economic activities you can still pass it down to your children you can still you know build your shed there but uh, i i think i think I hate to use the word privilege. Let's just use the word fortune. Having such a an amazing fortune comes with some public responsibilities as well. And I don't think it's asking much to let a hiker ramble over your grass or to, to let a, a hunter get to that public land or a fisherman to that, to that stream where he can legally fish. I, I think that's an appropriate thing to ask for someone who has so much. Amen. Um, with that, I'm going to let you go. That was awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
No worries. Are you keeping the Barbie in, or is that going to make the chopping block? Oh, no, it's definitely going to go in. <laughs> oh, God. We might lose half of our listeners by then, no, but if, man, you're, if you're still like, with us, thanks for, for coming on the ride. No, if you're... It can't, have, it can't be, oh, this has got to be about <laughs> hunting and access, you know? No, it's a conversation between adults just, like, letting the conversation flow. That's what I'm going for sure there's an overarching theme but man it's gonna get pretty dull if we can't go on have it can't have diet die if we if if we can't have digressions can i plug my book absolutely uh yeah so if you need some if you need some if you're trotting the if you're trying to like figure out your romantic life figure out (laughs) where to go next figure out what who your partner should be or whether you even should have one um yeah so yeah this land is our land um look up my name oh i thought you were talking about your new book no that one has doesn't have a publisher oh. yet that's still like oh, a year away okay. from seeing a new yes, book show please 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 yes i will do this again we'll do, we'll put this in the liner notes too, excellent so. uh this land is our land how we lost the right to Rome and how to take it back um you can you can find that on Amazon or any kind of online bookstore. I have a free newsletter where you can read my cranky movie reviews and some essays about any topic under the sun. Just go to my website, kenilgunis.com and sign up there. Ken, I'm glad you're out there. I really appreciate you taking the time. Have a, a, a wonderful Thanksgiving. You too, Matt. It's been a big honor. Thank you so much. You bet. Take care.